Welcome to the Her Sweet Spot Experience, dishing out tips and tricks on mindset, money, marketing, and media for your life and business, and where we talk to women about how they found their sweet spot. Welcome to the Her Sweet Spot Experience. I'm your host, Marsha Guerriere, and on today's episode, we'll be talking with Marsha L. McNair, author, professor, former editor and philanthropist. I can't wait to get into this. It's going to be a real dynamic conversation. So stay tuned for that. But you guys know what time it is. It's time for me to give you my tips and tricks that I've learned along the way in this entrepreneurial game. And today's tip is another amazing tip all about media for you and your business. So today's tip is know your journalist, right? It's so easy for you to pitch outlets that are the top outlets out in in the game, ABC, NBC, New York Times, but you got to know your journalists. Become familiar with the work of the journalists you're trying to make a connection with. Read their past stories. Check out their LinkedIn and their Twitter pages. By familiarizing yourself with the types of stories they write, you'll be able to better position yourself and your company in a way to attract their attention. Again, just because that journalist is someone who is hot and popping out there in the world of digital land and or um, television and print doesn't mean that it's a right fit for you and your company. And so you want to know more about them and don't just waste your time with your frivolous pitches. Build a relationship. Everything is about relationship building. So the tip of the day is know your journalist. Got it? Get it? Good. All right now, so we're going to take a really quick break and come back with our special guest, Marsha L. McNair, the author, professor, former editor, and philanthropist. Be right back. Her Sweet Spot is an online community for women influencers, leaders, and small business owners that offer coaching, education, resources, and networking opportunities for those looking to start or grow a business. We are the go-to incubator for success-driven solo CEOs who need their own team of C-suite coaches. Here's where she will find her sweet spot in mindset, money, marketing, and media. To learn more, visit www.hersweetspot.com. That's her, S-U-I-T-E, spot.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Her Sweet Spot Experience, bringing you amazing guests and content in mindset, money, marketing, and media. Get your pen and your paper out because you never know when my guests will be dropping some real nuggets and those aha moments that all new and emerging entrepreneurs need. So let's get started. Let me tell you a little bit about our guest today. Marsha L. McNear is currently an associate professor of English, journalism, and women and gender studies at Nassau Community College and formerly an assistant editor at Essence Magazine. McNair has numerous publishing credits as a journalist, poet, and essayist. 
her essay, The Incident Revisited, Certed in the play she co-authored, Sisters on Fire, a musical, appears in the anthology, Black Lives Has Always Mattered, published by Two Leaf Press in 2017. Her poem, Long Island Just Isn't Long Enough, is published in Songs of Seasoned Women by Quandra So in 2008 and was performed by composer Leonard Lehmann at the opening of Hofstra University's Suburban Conference on Diversity in 2009. An excerpt from her first novel, Emails, uh, published by Aya, Aya Press, in 2007 was performed at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture in 2009. Her essay, A Tale of Two Mothers, appears in the anthology, Mothers Are Special, Celebrating Mama and Them, uh, published by Memory Lane Publishers in 2017. Marsha is a mother of two. She grew up in New Jersey. She lived both in Harlem and Queens but she now resides on Long Island for over 20 years. Let's welcome Marsha McNair to our show. Welcome, Marsha. Welcome. <laughs> I love that introduction. What a welcome. How could we not start this day with a media tip, being that you are such an accomplished and amazing uh, professional in media. I thank you so much for uh, taking the time and being on our show and sharing with our listeners today all about Marsha McNair. Well, thank you so much, Marsha. And um, before we really get into it about Sisters on Fire, I'd like to express my appreciation for all of the support you've shown to another one of my projects, which is Long Island Girl Talk. Uh, you uh, received an award from us. You did a fantastic motivational speech at one of our graduation ceremonies. And I just like to tell you how much we really appreciate uh, your support and the support of your organization. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure. And you know, anytime I could get in front of young, impressionable minds and young girls especially it's really it's really my honor and mm -hmm. for what you're doing uh through your nonprofit to help young girls learn about the world of media right so yes I, i'm so I, I couldn't say enough about what i think is the phenomenal work that you do and so let's get into talking about how you even got here to begin with so i want to know more about marsha before the professor before the playwright and, and where we are today. Tell me more about your start. Well, you know, I think my journey began when I was a young child because I always loved to read. And I think that obsession with reading uh, led me to become interested in writing. Um, I used to illustrate and write little books even when I was um, in an elementary school. Um, I wouldn't say they were uh, the best, but you know, 
um, while the other kids were out playing uh, kickball and uh, swinging on the swings, I was often um, home um, drawing pictures and, 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 and trying to create my own books. And uh, I always uh, seemed to win the reading contest that we used to have in school for how many books can you read? So I think there was then this natural bridge that was being built to uh, becoming a writer. And I think doing so much reading actually helped my writing because I wouldn't, wouldn't say I was the best student um, when I was in elementary school. Um, I liked to talk a lot. I was a class clown. So a lot of what I learned about writing came from reading. And that's a piece of advice that I give to uh, my students today even is if you are interested in improving your writing you need to read more yes even now as as entrepreneurs um are sharing more about how they become successful you, you the number one thing you hear is through reading yes so, it's extremely but, important and i think uh, when you read the biographies of um, many accomplished people, uh, they do note that often it was something they read that helped them literally turn the page in their lives. Right. So, you know, reading was real important part of my life. It led to the interest in writing. And so um, from there, I decided that when I went to college, I would major in English. And even in college, I continued to write creatively. I was the editor of the Black Literary Magazine at one point. I was the editor of the Black Newspaper at one point. And I, I went to um, Dartmouth College on a scholarship. And I um, just kept, you know, even if I wasn't super serious about it and I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do when I graduated, I just kept um, pursuing writing because it was more, it, it was fun for me. I, I didn't really think of it as a, a career. Um, I just thought of it as something that I like to do. And I think it's important for anyone when you do ultimately choose a career, Choose something that you like to do that whether or not you are paid, you would still do it. And right. so what writing um, was for me. And, and thinking back to if there are any listeners now that are struggling to even find that thing that they want to get into or they know that the career change is imminent, they just don't know what to do, look back at your childhood. because. You've been doing this and you've had a fascination and an interest exactly. in writing for so long. And oftentimes people kind of, you've been lucky and blessed enough to always follow that path of writing and reading and going into subjects in college and keeping along the same path. And some people don't, they deviate because we, we, learn, we learn that we need to do what's best and go into corporate jobs or government jobs or, you know, and so it's great that you have always forged that same um, 
path for yourself and your family was supportive in that. And, and that's what you've done with your, your career. That's fantastic to know. Well, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say my family was supportive <laughs> of it. <laughs> I don't think I understood it. You know, I come from really a humble background. My people were originally from the South, from Florida and Georgia. Um, they weren't well educated. Um, I think they found it more of a curiosity. They wanted me to do something more traditional, but like, you a, know, tra like a traditional trade that they felt. Right. Be a nurse. That was the, the original right. plan. And then I realized I was, you know, afraid of the sight of blood. So that wasn't going to work. Um, <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I, you know, they, they um, did realize that this was something I was passionate about. And I think because I did so much reading, it empowered me that despite the fact that they wanted me to do something more traditional, um, I, I knew I could um, create my own path because of the models in the books that I read, like uh, the autobiography of Angela Davis. You know, Davis came from a um, middle-class background. They also wanted her uh, to follow a more traditional path. And, and just in reading her story and, and how she decided that um, she had this interest in social activism and was going to pursue it no matter what, that was a real role model for me. And many, many of the other books um, that I read um, about civil rights leaders. So, you know, I was sort of not necessarily um, the type of child that always listened <laughs> to her parents. I, I, I kind of got, um, you know, galvanized by all of the, you know, militant reading that I was doing. Um, and I had a real interest in African-American culture because where I grew up, it was a predominantly white suburb. And the only way I could really find out about my culture was through reading. Um, so that um, led me to minor in, um, it was called Black Studies at the time when I was at Dartmouth. And once I graduated, though, uh, having this major in English and uh, Black Studies, I was pretty much prepared to do anything and nothing. <laughs> uh, you know, what area I should go into. Uh, so I tried out advertising. I didn't really like it. And at that time, when you were looking for jobs, you would you know, buy a newspaper and look in the classified ads. I don't even know if they still have those anymore. And reading the classified ads, and I saw what they call a blind ad. A blind ad, um, I know you know what it is, but for younger members of your audience, um, a blind ad is when the name of the company is not listed. But so the name of the company wasn't listed, but the description. I knew it was Essence Magazine because at the time there were no other magazines for black women. It had Essence, <laughs> you know, I didn't have both. Yeah, that wasn't confusing at all. So uh, 
they were looking for someone um, in their art department. And, you know, besides writing, I always had an interest in art and I had an art scholarship and I love drawing and painting and so forth. So uh, I, I figured if I could get in the door at Essence, eventually I could move my way into the editorial department. And that's exactly uh, what happened. I started in the art department as a receptionist actually. And uh, eventually when they created a assistant editor position, which they didn't have before, and I would say it's more what we call now like a junior editor, um, I was in line for it because they already knew me. I had a portfolio. I was ready to go. So, I, you know, what I would say to people who want to pursue a certain job, get your foot in the door somehow, some way. And by doing that, it actually gives the company a, a chance to vet you, so to speak. And uh, I got vetted in the art department because they knew me well in there. That was an instant reference. I um, got to know the editor-in-chief. Um, all of this prior to uh, applying for the job as the assistant editor. Yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. And be prepared. I had a portfolio of writing that I had been developing throughout the years. So anything that I had published, I just put it in a three ring binder and a page protector. And I was, you know, I didn't know when it would happen, but I said, you know, one day I might need to show this to someone. And sure enough, when that job was created, I, I was ready. I had a portfolio of my work. I had, um, in addition to everything that I ever had published, I had letters of recommendation in there. That's something I think people should think about developing uh, in general, just to have that, because you never know when opportunity is going to knock. You're listening to the Her Sweet Spot Experience. Well, with emails, it really developed out of the correspondence I had with my former college roommate. And we, it was the early days of the internet and uh, email, because there was no social media at that time. That was really the way that people were keeping in touch with each other. And what I noticed was that, uh, you know, as um, women of intellect, we weren't just simply writing about what was going on in our day-to-day -day lives but we were also having some discussions about uh, the issues of the day. Uh, we were talking about the politics, religion, uh, you know, um, sexism, racism. And it was around the time of the Y2K scare, which again, for your younger 
folks in the audience, there was a time in 1999 when we all thought it might be the end of the world. <laughs> right, exactly, stored water and so forth. And even people who knew better, you just couldn't help get influenced by it. It was a lot of propaganda, I would say, out there. So. You know, my friend, um, right before the end of the year, she sent me copies of all of the emails that we had been exchanging, I guess thinking this might be it. <laughs> yeah. um, and as I was reading them, I said, oh, my God, you know what? This, because I'd forgotten about a lot of the stuff we shared, um, this would make a great book. And so ultimately, I did turn that email um, conversation into a book called Emails. And I, I decided to use the play on words because, you know, in between our discussions of, of politics and of social injustices, et cetera, we, yeah, we were talking about um, our male friends <laughs> and our romantic interests. And so I think what makes the book unique is that it's actually a blend of the romantic topics along with the more serious topics. And, um, it, you know, fragmentary writing, and it, it's in that genre, has been around for quite some time. Um, well before the internet, people were exchanging letters. And if you read those letters, they really do tell a story. So emails um, tells that story of a year um, in the life of two uh, professional African-American women. And I decided to ultimately self-publish it because I was having difficulty getting a mainstream publisher. And I'm glad I did because it also uh, gave me a chance to meet a lot of interesting people who were in the self-published author world. And it made me more hands-on in terms of the marketing, meaning I actually, you know, met my public. Where when you're with a mainstream publisher, that doesn't necessarily happen as much. So um, IAPRESS was the former company. I, I formed a, a publishing company to publish uh, emails and, and other work that I felt um, was being overlooked in the mainstream um, publishing world. Women of intellect, we weren't just simply writing about what was going on in our day-to-day -day lives, but we were also having some discussions about uh, the issues of the day. Uh, we were talking about the politics, religion, uh, you know, um, sexism, racism. And it was around the time of the Y2K scare, which again, for your younger folks in the audience, there was a time in 1999 when we all thought it might be the end of the world. <laughs> Right, exactly, stored water and so forth. And even people who knew better, 
it, you just couldn't help get influenced by it was a lot of propaganda I would say out there so you know my friend um right before the end of the year she sent me copies of all of the emails that we had been exchanging I guess thinking this might be it <laughs> yeah. um and as I was reading them I said oh my god you know what this because I'd forgotten about a lot of the stuff we shared um this would make a great book and so ultimately I did turn that email um conversation into a book called emails and I, I decided to use the play on words because you know in between our discussions of, of politics and of social injustices etc we yeah we were talking about um our male friends <laughs> and our romantic interests and so i think what makes the book unique is that it's actually a blend of the romantic topics along with the more serious topics and um it, you know fragmentary writing and it, it's in that genre has been around for quite some time um well before the internet people were exchanging letters and if you read those letters they really do tell a story so emails um tells that story of a year um in the life of two uh professional african-american women and i decided to ultimately self-publish it because i was having difficulty getting a mainstream publisher and i'm glad i did because it also uh, gave me a chance to meet a lot of interesting people who were in the self-published author world and it made me more hands-on in terms of the marketing meaning i actually you know met my public where when you're with a mainstream publisher that doesn't necessarily happen as much so um i oppress was the former company i, I formed a, a publishing company to publish uh emails and and other work that i felt um was being overlooked in the mainstream um publishing world you know i, I was always successful with getting my various uh essays published whether in a newspaper or a magazine but my longer work of that book which was my first it's i'd say you know it was fictionalized to a certain extent to protect the privacy of the, the people in the book but um that was my first longer work and as you said i felt very protective over it as well so i'm glad I took the self-publishing route with that. It was originally written in 2007 as a series of readings, and those readings were then called Diary of a Mad Black Feminist. That, that series of readings in 2007, and it was inspired by the execution of Frances Newton, who was the first African-American woman to be executed in the state of texas since 1869 and because there was so little publicity about that um i, I it just made me furious um 
And I reached out to all of the African-American female writers I knew and asked them, would they like to contribute to a series of readings uh, on the topic of social injustice from an African-American female perspective? I got a lot of um, contributions. And um, ultimately, I think my best partner has been uh, Professor Anissa Moore at Nassau Community College. She was the former chair of the communications department. We were hired around the same time. We're close friends and very like-minded. And her work really resonated with me. And so Sisters on Fire is a combination of writing on social injustice um, by myself and by Professor um, Moore. I was so angry that um, all I wanted to do was just express my opinion. And so we did the, you know, we, we reached out to different community-based organizations and offered to do this series of readings. But what happened was, as a result, so many people came out for those readings um, that it, it, it inspired us to take the readings to the next level. We, we were I, I, I'm quite shocked that there were so many people with whom our um, perspective resonated with, and I'm talking about a range of ages, religions, um, men were enthusiastic about it, which was quite shocking to us. It's from an African-American female perspective, but we had such an outpouring of love and support from our audiences that we knew we had to take this somewhere even bigger. And so we decided to turn those readings into a more theatrical experience. You're listening to the Her Sweet Spot Experience. Well, because of its unusual structure, which is it's a combination of poetry, prose, song, and dance, it allowed us to edit and revise the script based on the current political climate. So the original play, there, there are many pieces that um, are still in today's version of the play, but there were some pieces that we um, let go in favor of more timely topics. So that's how we've been able to keep the play uh, relevant. Um, I do see theater as an effective form of social activism because in response to the play, people who have felt like they haven't had a voice, uh, they're given a voice. At the end of every performance, we have a talkback session, which is unusual in most forms of theater. Um, prior to the performance, we pass out note cards and we ask people, you know, what gets you angry? What gets you mad? Because that is a running theme throughout Sisters on Fire. And at the end, the cast actually reads those cards and people get the dialogue with each other. And so the play in many ways becomes a forum 
for the voiceless and not just for African-American women, but for so many people in society who feel that uh, they're not being recognized, not being heard. Well, I think the biggest challenge for us with the play is the same challenge that African-American women face in society in general. We are dealing with not only racism, but also sexism. Um, the play's written from an African-American female perspective. When we were um, seeking producers, um, many of them felt like there would, that, that the audience would be too narrow. They didn't really see that, uh, despite it was um, about African-American women, that we have more in common than most people realize. And so a lot of producers didn't see that, though. Right. Uh, they were saying, wow, this, your audience will only be African-American women. And I, you know, I remember um, pitching it to a producer who just flat out said he, he just didn't think that a play about African-American women would be commercially viable. Um, that, we know, is absolutely not true. Uh, because I, I think we, we're also, you know, in Sisters on Fire, definitely um, influenced by the work of Nataki Shange in For Color Girls Who Have Considered Suicide When the Rainbow Is Enough. Right. Uh, he broke down those barriers. So I really just couldn't understand how people could say this is not commercially viable when we, she, she showed that um, in her choral poem, that this type of work was that people were interested in learning more about the lives of African American women. Yes. But I, you know, again, um, you're, we're facing not only racism, but we're facing sexism. So it was difficult for us to find a producer. And that's why ultimately we decided to produce it ourselves. We entered it in a number of contests. Uh, we performed in numerous um, theater festivals. Um, we're still in that process of um, trying to find the backing that we need for the play. But I'm thinking that the current political climate, it's making people more aware of how necessary a play like Sisters on Fire is. Right. Because we're living in a day and age of extreme intolerance. You know, we have um, anti-Semitic attacks. We have the killing of unarmed black men and so forth. And people are concerned about it. We have the Me Too movement. Uh, we have the Black Lives Matter movement. People are recognizing that we need to take action and not just wait for someone else to solve these various social injustices. And so I think activism really is on a lot of people's minds now. And this play is like a perfect vehicle um, to express that because in, in the play, a young college student is given an assignment of writing a paper on a pressing social issue. And 
in the course of writing her paper, she interviews four different African-American women, and they get to talk about which social injustices that are closest to that, that, well, I would say that they're most angry about. Right. And as a result of that, this young college student becomes uh, radicalized, uh, whereas before, it, you know, she really hadn't thought about all of these issues, or if she did, she didn't think, well, I can, you know, she didn't realize there was anything she could do about it. Right. Um, so you start to educate yourself. Right. At the end of the play. Right. Her whole attitude shifts. And we're hoping to see that kind of shift in um, our audiences uh, as well. I think it's so great what you're doing. And I believe that when more people see it, they will begin to shift their mindset and become part of the solution. And I think you give our listeners great um, inspiration to know that when you are trying to get a seat at the table and you will always get that seat, create your own. You get to not only self-publishing early on and then you took it to the next level. And (coughs) excuse me, you really started with no big dreams and big plans for it, but then you allowed it to evolve and grow and you just self-produced and I think that is um, phenomenal but it takes a strong and resilient mindset to do what you've done and to to really sustain all these years Um, in terms of building that mindset for women that are continuing in their struggle that are listening and almost feel defeated they have heard so many no's but that one yes is on its way what advice would you give to a woman who is looking to get her script picked up, looking to get her 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 um, writing published? What advice would you give on building that resilient mindset? Well, I think what's been really important for Sisters on Fire, um, a musical, and and if people are want more details about our journey. Uh, um, they can always go to our website, uh, sistersonfire.com. Uh, but having a support system is very important. That's why groups like yours are very important, because going in alone can be tough. And I think uh, the fact that Professor Moore and I worked so well together and, and have this um, social activist streak in us that is very strong in this need to provide community service and to help others. That was the support system that we needed in each other. We also found that people who have um, participated in the play, whether as actresses or behind the scenes, also recognized that the play was far more important than the um, the, the commercial uh, profit. They, they, they knew they were willing to dedicate their time and effort because of the subject matter. Right. And I think that for women who are, you know, struggling with these challenges, the number one thing is to find other people who um, think the way that you do, 
um, that believe in what you're doing so that when the going gets tough, you have someone to, to turn to for encouragement. And I think too often because African-American women are you know, known for being strong and independent, we don't rely enough or even try to develop any type of network of support. Um, I, I realize now more than ever um, after 10 years of doing this play that definitely it could not have been done um, without that support system. And as I said, whether it was people who um, did the play for free or for low cost, um, directed the play for uh, free or, or no cost, who put in a lot of time and effort because they believed in the message in the play. And those people are out there. You just have to seek them. Right. Agree. Thank you so much, Marsha. Before uh, I let you go, we're going to take a quick break so we could get to hear from our uh, mindful moments with Natasha Nurse. And we're going to come back with a segment that I call In the News. So hang tight with us. Right now, we're going to take a quick break with the Hurt Sweet Spot Mindful Moment. Here is your mindful moment. Welcome to the next mindful moment with me, Natasha Nurse, your innovation coach with her sweet spot, and the content creator behind Dressing Roommate. Today, we're talking about three affirmations that you can use to jumpstart your day. Why? Because affirmations are a wonderful way to inspire yourself and motivate yourself to get the day started, to start on a, a, a foot of presence and happiness and joy to be alive, as well as to cut out the negativity because we all know there's too many negative thoughts inside of our heads and the negative thoughts that we hear outside. So you have to be your own best cheerleader. So affirmations are a great way to eliminate and reduce that negative noise in your life. Let's share. Okay. First one. Thank you universe for giving me the opportunity to achieve my goals, to tell my loved ones how much I love them and to contribute positivity and love in this world. This is an affirmation that affirms a couple of things. First, opportunity is around you every single day. You have to believe that to achieve and touch these opportunities. So put it out there, affirm the opportunities around you. Next, achievement right? We want to affirm that we can achieve our goals. We have to believe that we can achieve them to actually do it. Now, how much we love our loved ones. We all know life is precious and very fragile. It's important to affirm that you have loved ones, that you have people in your life that you care about, and that it's a good reminder to say, hey, you know what? I love you. I care for you. You matter to me and vice versa. And then of course, the world is filled with enough negativity. We do not individually need to add more to it. If you want to be the change in this world, then you have to live up to that testimony and actually put out positive thoughts. If we have nothing positive to say, we don't need to add that to the, the narrative of the world. Add positivity, add love. 
All right, so that is a really good affirmation that will help remind you of the key things to focus in on your life as well as in in what has to happen for you to feel good in your daily life. Next affirmation you can use is the following. I am powerful, I am blessed, I am brilliant, I am capable, I am enough, I am phenomenally great. This is inspired by the Phenomenal Woman poem by Maya Angelou. And sometimes it's really important just to say positive words of, of, of beauty and joy that speak over yourself in the sense that like, yes, you're a powerful person because you're a human being, you're alive, you're capable of so much, so much you don't even know. You're blessed because you are alive, because you've had accomplishments, because you've had teachable moments. That is a blessing, the good, bad, and everything in between. You are brilliant because again, you have so much to do in this world. We have to speak that over ourselves. You're capable, yes. You have to speak capability into your life because why? Most of us doubt our capabilities. So to eliminate doubt, you have to affirm what you want and you are capable. You are enough, meaning you don't have to change to be anyone else. Everyone else is taken. You've got to be yourself. And then of course, you're phenomenally great because you've got to tell yourself and affirm to yourself, you are amazing. You are perfectly made the way that you are. It's all about enjoying and living that truth in this world. Now, the next affirmation is something that is going to get you really, really determined to jumpstart your day. Here we go. I'm determined to do what it takes to achieve my goals by any means necessary. This is inspired by Malcolm X. He said the phrase, by any means necessary. So when you say something like this, It is telling yourself, listen, I'm not here for excuses. I am not here for distractions. I am not here for self-doubt, but I am here to do what I say I'm going to do by any means necessary. This is the approach and this is the affirmation that is saying, absolutely not. I will refuse to do anything other than what I want in this world. And that is a great way to start this day. So this concludes this mindful moment with me, her sweet spot innovation coach, Natasha Nurse. If you want to connect with me and learn more about my platform, visit dressingroom8.com. This was brought to you by the Her Sweet Spot Experience, the podcast that will change your life and business in ways you can't even imagine. Subscribe and follow at hersweetspot.com. Welcome back, guys. I hope you enjoyed today's Mindful Moment brought to you by Her Sweet Spot, your strategic partners for your business. So, Marcia, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today and getting to know more about your journey as a author, professor, philanthropist, and former editor of um, a beautiful magazine called Essence, I should say. Uh, We mentioned that a little earlier. So in today's, in the news segment, we're going to be talking about three tips for securing top media coverage. Marsha, are you ready to run down uh, the list of three tips uh, to secure top media coverage? And I want to get your feedback on it since you are the media expert here today on our show. 
This is according to cmasolutions.com, an article that I found online. Uh, the first thing, Marsha, is to write a pertinent press release. How important is writing and submitting a press release? Um, it's extremely important because that is the main way you're going to get the word out about what you're doing. And I think people don't realize that most publications are looking for content, especially um, locally. You know, um, the fact that we're doing the play at Nassau Community College means that we now have um, media on Long Island interested in the play um, that were not necessarily um, helping to publicize it when we did it at the East Village Playhouse in Manhattan. Right, which is phenomenal. Congratulations, yes. by the way, for forgetting. Yes, wow. so it's the, that, but that press release going out to your local media, I think if you, people think in terms of local media, they will probably get a better response than, let's say, trying to get something into the New York Times. <laughs> <laughs> Right, I agree. It's important to build uh, media on the local level. And we talk about that all the time um, here at Her Sweet Spot. You're not always, you shouldn't always think that you're going to go for that number one media outlet. So number two on the three tips for securing top media coverage, according to cmasolutions.com, is build a media list with an eye on detail. So they say compiling a media list is twofold. First, research the type of media outlets you want to reach by considering the type of news you want to share. And if you want to announce a new hire or promotion, local and hyper-local media outlets will probably be your best bet, as we just mentioned, right? So if your organization uh, with a self a staff expert on a subject that's uh, become a topic of national debate, that news has the potential to lure a much wider audience. What are your thoughts on building that list? And we talked a little bit about that um, just now. Really getting, um, getting close to more local and that hyper-local media outlet. Well, I think what is critical, because I don't want to be redundant in terms of, you know, mentioning again to focus on local media, but I'd also say in participating in various um, organizations, mm -hmm. you never know whom you're going to meet. And you just may meet someone in one of those, at one of those networking events who is um, in the media who is looking for content. I've had that happen uh, several times, and I know at the last um, Women's Empowerment event, you had, Marcia, at LaGuardia um, yes. Hotel. Um, I just so happened to be sitting next to a young woman who was in the theater department at Queens College. And so we were able to connect. And I did not go there really expecting to meet any um, people in the theatrical field. So right. that's so awesome to hear. I love when I hear later on all the good connections and that yes. happens at my event. That's so fantastic. 
Yes. So that that's what I would say is building that top list. You don't have to think outside of the box. You don't have to take the route that everybody else is taking and um, stay open-minded. And again, um, through various organizations, a chamber of commerces and, and you know, uh, women's groups, even your churches, uh, you might find that there's an individual in there who has the connection that you're looking for. Right. That's so true. Join organizations, network, network, network. We talk about that all the time here in Her Sweet Spot. So number three, the third tip for securing top media coverage, according to an article found at, on cmasolutions.com, is to pitch and sell your story. So they say, after you distribute the press release, it's important to follow up with journalists to pitch and sell your story in a non-pushy way. So important, that last part, a non-pushy way. More, right? What, what are your thoughts on how aggressive, how many times is too many times of, of a follow-up should you do? Well, I think it's important. Follow-up is important in any area of life, whether that is business or personal. So I think that the idea of not being pushy, however, is critical because it can also be a turnoff. So I wouldn't uh, barrage anyone with a series of emails but um, or phone calls, but I'd say maybe an email versus a phone call. Or if you do uh, use phone calls, leave a voicemail that makes it clear why you're calling and what you're calling about and leave it up to the individual to decide um, whether or not they want to respond. Um, I know even with the production of Sisters on Fire at Nassau Community College that is coming up, even though I'm already there, um, I had to follow up with emails once the idea of people seemed interested in the idea. I, I had to follow up with emails to the uh, theater department, for instance. I had to get um, additional uh, information. Uh, so be assertive, not aggressive. Right. Assertive, not aggressive, right? And know your story. Know it yes. so well that it, it comes out very naturally um, and not... And, don't be afraid to, to go for the ask, I think, is another thing that we could say. Uh, thank you so much, Marsha, for joining me today. Uh, why don't you share with everyone where they can find uh, Sisters on Fire. Um, hopefully, it will be coming to a city near you, to a theater near you. Uh, stay, stay connected with Marsha. Share with everyone all your social media handles and websites. Well, our website is sistersonfire.com, and that's S-I-S-T-A-S-O-N-F-I-R-E.com, because we're using the colloquial spelling of sisters. <laughs> so <laughs> that people get that right. And we always update the website with our latest production. Uh, currently, we are performing 
out here on Long Island. We're doing a student production at uh, the Nassau Community College main stage in January. Uh, it's the last two weeks of January, January 24th through the 26th and January 29th through February 2nd. And what's important about that last uh, performance is that all of the proceeds from the Sunday, February 2nd show will go to the Professor Kenneth Jenkins Memorial Scholarship Fund. And Kenneth Jenkins was the uh, former chair of Africana Studies at Nassau Community College. He was really responsible for developing the department when it was known as Afro-American Studies. And he passed away a couple of years ago. So we uh, created the scholarship fund to support students of the African diaspora who de demonstrate academic achievement and outstanding participation in campus and community activities. And the box office on that last day will go to the Memorial Scholarship Fund. Um, fantastic. I am going to buy my ticket for that day. Great. I can't wait to, I've seen the show, but I want to see it again. It is always, um, for me, it's very inspiring and thought-provoking. Thank you. Be in the New York area. I really would love for you to go out and uh, support this play. Tickets are only $10. I mean, it's a lot less than when it was at the East Village Playhouse. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember. That's true. And, and uh, perhaps you have a, a bigger area to and stage, and, and I'm excited to see it at the college. Yes, yes. And it's an all-student production, too, which um, I'm excited about seeing what students uh, can do with these various roles. That is fantastic. Well, thank you again, Marsha. You guys know what I say at the end of each episode. Until next time, remember, when we empower each other, we all rise. Bye-bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week on the Her Sweet Spot Experience. Make sure to visit our website, www.hersweetspot.com. That's her, S-U-I-T-E, spot.com, where you can become a member of our growing community and get great content for your life and business. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. We are your strategic partners to grow your business.